Hello there listeners, it's Susie New here, President of the Australian Society of Anesthetists and welcome to our podcast where we talk all things relevant to anesthesia in Australia. For those of you out there trying to get onto the anesthesia training program or get a quick care job, this podcast is for you. I've just been chatting with Dr. Ahmed El-Hawali, who is a second year resident and who also just got a critical care job for next year. Ahmed is also one of the newest members of the ASA and he's taken advantage of a new membership category which opened up in September last year and it's for pre-vocational doctors. And the reason we opened up this membership category is because we realised this can be a challenging time, it can be very competitive. We've got a stack of resources which we hope that you will find useful. One of those is the trainee handbook, which is freely available from the ASA website. And one of the things we go over in this episode, I'll put a link to it in the show notes so that you don't have to go hunting around for it. Hope you enjoy listening and also wishing you good luck for getting on the program if that's what you want to do in the future. Thank you. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. But I believe I should say congratulations because you just got a quick care job for next year. Thank you. I'm very excited about that. That was a massive hurdle and it's a step in the right direction. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people who have the same aspirations that I do in the same level of training who didn't get them. So I'm actually wrapped to have taken that next step and tick that box that needs to be ticked and develop my training further and get more experience in the field. Well done. Can I ask, is this the first time that you've applied for a good care job? Yeah, so I'm currently PGY2. There was a couple of positions that would have been eligible for me this year, but I didn't apply for them because the the number of positions were really small. And realistically, most people get them in third years. And I knew the Northern in particular had a pathway for PGY2s to do a lot of anesthesia training. So I managed to get six months of that, which was amazing for someone at my level. That's more than the usual PGY2 job. It's sneakily written down as pre-admission clinic. So anyone who wants to be a surgeon has no interest in it. It means half my time is spent in theatre. I got to swap a vascular rotation for another pre-admission clinic. So I got six months of it and got to develop like really good relationships. I got to intubate over 100 people. I got to do a lot of spinals as well, a lot of pre-op assessment. So I felt very confident. And because of COVID, the number of ICU HMOs has gone up as well. And I managed to score one of those. So my surgical year is really not surgical at all. It's very much a quick care year. So I'm going to luckily get essentially two quick care years back to back. So hopefully that'll make me a pretty decent candidate for when I do apply. I'm really going to hit the ground running. So next year will be the usual PGY3 quick care year. And I really like that comment. You said that you've done over 100 intubations. Are you keeping a logbook of these? So I have. I started my logbook out late in the process. So they're not all logged, but I've got at least like 60 written down. I've got all my spinals written down. It's a good resource to have so that when someone asks me, I can just point to the number and I've got it there. I really like the comments that you made about having a logbook. I did similarly, and I actually still keep a logbook of my cases. That's so good. Yeah, yeah, I've got, we can talk through software and apps at some stage if you like. I'm sure they've probably been updated since I downloaded I still use the same app that I that I used as a first year registrar. Well, you're, you're a step ahead of me because I'm using an Excel spreadsheet, so it's, it's very janky. Anything, I think, as long as you can extract the data from it. Because it does become really handy, I think, if you're going for some of the jobs. It certainly helped me with getting quite a competitive job. At the time, I was just collecting the information because it was more to track my own progress. 
So when I was doing spinals, for example, I would record how many attempts it took me. And then after a while, it, everything just became first attempt, first attempt, first attempt. So it was good. I could just objectively try to measure my skills and how I was acquiring skills. But then I went to apply for a job. And one of the things I asked is how many XYZ patients have you looked for? How many of these have you done? And I just pulled it out of my logbook. And I think because thankfully, just like you had a lot of exposure in my junior years to certain patient mixes, and I just had a lot of numbers in my casebook. Maybe they were impressed by the numbers. Maybe they were impressed by the fact that I actually was recording the numbers. I don't know that, that I got the job. And that's the reality of the world these days. The idea of big data being so important. There's companies out there that base the whole business model on information and data. So having your own data recorded so that you can utilize it to your benefit is just the next step, right? Yeah. And there's just so many easier ways to record it now and extract it. A couple of clicks and you're done. So we'll have to talk about like what software you use. There's lots out there if you search for anesthesia logbooks. So is it quite competitive getting a quick care job? Uh, it is. Just like getting onto the anesthetic training program, it is really competitive. I know a couple of residents who I went through medical school with who I would expect like top candidates who are interested in anesthetics. One of them had done a ICU term this year and a cardiology term, and he wasn't able to get one at his hospital. He would have easily been in the top... 20 of 130 in our year. So he's, he's no slouch um, and he didn't get one. And we all applied to the same places. Nowhere else interviewed me despite having done all this quick care training this year. And I've attended all the quick care teaching sessions. And before this, my undergrad was, uh, I was a paramedic for eight years. And so got a lot of clinical experience. What do you think is the bigger hurdle, getting a quick care job or getting onto the program? Probably the program. I also applied to ANSCA this year, despite being a PGY2. And that was with the blessing of a lot of senior people because I approached them first, if it was a silly idea to apply. They said, look, considering your, your previous clinical history and what you've done so far this year, it's not unreasonable. Don't expect to get on. There's high caliber people that apply, but don't expect to get on, but it'll at least introduce you to the application process and you might get an interview. And unfortunately, I didn't even get an interview this year, but it hasn't discouraged me from applying in the future again because I am very junior and I acknowledge that and more experience will just make me a better clinician. It's a precious time, I think, training time. It's when you actually have someone with you that you can consult on. And once you step out with your specialist qualification, it's not always automatic to be able to get people's opinion on how you give an anaesthetic. Definitely, I think that's a great attitude. Make the most of it. And you've just recently joined the ASA. Yeah, so it was within the last month that I've really joined. So I'm really glad to have had the opportunity to join this wonderful bunch of people who share the same passions that I do and have managed to develop all the knowledge that I'm hoping to acquire in, in the near future. You don't have to say that. I was happy to. I was so impressed because you read the trainee handbook. Yeah, so I was clicking through the website just to kind of understand what's available to me now that I'm a member. When I saw the training handbook and as someone who, who was thinking about applying to ASCA, I was like, oh, maybe there's a couple of tips. And there was pages on stuff. And as a result, I changed parts of my application. I thought it was really useful. And there was heaps of information in there that was incredibly, incredibly useful for me. I've done a course where David Story was a presenter. And the section which he talked about research in the training handbook, I thought was really, really useful. And as someone who hasn't published anything yet, but is in the process of it, he had quite a few good little tips and tricks there as far as moving forward with research and acquiring some. So I thought that was, yeah, that was really, really useful. Oh, good. Just coming back to the tips that you gleaned from the handbook in terms of applying, what were some of the main tips that you liked reading about? And, and in particular, how did you end up changing your application? 
There's a section on managing your CV. The things that they put in there was make it a little bit clearer. So I had used a template that was probably not as ideal. It was like a dual column situation. I didn't have any numbers on the pages. There were tips in there that were like, just make it really easy to read, address your audience, like really basic stuff, which I had tried to do. But having someone write it down and have it there in front of you gave me more of a, a framework to work with. It had the headings there that I was able to follow. So I just followed the plan that they had essentially. And I think it looked a lot better. And then when I shopped it around with some of the other consultants just to get opinions, they had just positive things to say about it. So that was good. Well, that's good. So you've got a nice buffed up CV and you've done a, a little trial. You've, you've checked it out and other people think it's looking good. Yeah, so it's work that I don't have to do next year. I just have to update it, which I'm happy to do. At least that work's been done. Yeah, good one. And any other tips from the handbook for applying for jobs? They had a little section on how to write a cover letter and what things to focus on because you can fall into a trap of making a cover letter just a rehashy CV. And that's not the point of it. It highlights, talk about the anesthetic specialty that you're interested in. Talk about how you manage yourself as an employee in the workplace. And I think those are all valid things that may not come across in the CV because it's not necessarily what you've done in the past, which I thought was useful. Yeah, good points. I think it's changed over the years when people have asked me about how to get on the program. Maybe 10 years ago, I used to say, come to work and be a good clinician. You know, show that you can do a great preoperative assessment, show that you can start thinking about how you might approach the anaesthetic, discuss a plan with your consultant, show that you've tried to check the machine or thought about which drugs to draw up. Propofol is a pretty safe one to draw up. And I was always very much about just showing you've got that clinical nous, I suppose. But I think over the last decade, it's now changed. I used to be a little bit anti the concept of CV buffing don't do something just for the sake of putting it on your CV. But I think now it's so competitive. Most people have to do an audit to get on and most people had to show some interest in education or something like that, as well as now being a good clinician. They've done a few courses, make sure they've got an ALS course under their belt. Is that your approach to getting on the program? Yeah. And I've been very lucky because I got that six months of anesthesia. It's linked me in with a lot of people who were able to point me in the right direction where I can develop some of these skills and express myself in that way. So yeah, teaching's a really big part of something that I love doing. I've had the opportunity to, to take on MD2s and MD4s through University of Melbourne and do multiple classes with, classes with them a week. So I, I typically spend two to three hours a week with them. And I have since the beginning of the year. And that's something that I really, really do enjoy. The upside of it is I get to stick it on my CV as something I've done. And I agree. I hate the concept of CV buffing for the sake of buffing. In some way, this has become kind of an arms race. The person with the biggest and bestest CV gets looked at. I am ticking boxes in some ways. I'm doing more research, not having the biggest passion for it. So that's something that I've been doing, but I love teaching. So I get to do that and I get to develop my teaching skills. Particularly when you you are teaching uh, medical students, they'll typically ask you questions that you haven't really considered because that's just how things are. It makes me not just look at my practice, but read textbooks that I hadn't thought about in a couple of years. I've had to look back on some old notes and dust off some old cobwebs. Nothing makes you know something better than having to teach it. It'll be a good knowledge base for you to build on when you go to sit your first part exam. Well, that's exactly it. That's one way that I've been reviewing. And as we all know, medicine marches on looking at some of the new guidelines and the new research. And you go, oh, okay, that, that has changed. COVID's a classic example of where a whole bunch of new research just got published. And that was stuff that we never learned in medical school. And you just have to adapt to the world as it is. Exactly. It moves on a bit too quickly sometimes.
I'm interested in what you learned from David Story's contribution to the training handbook. What were some of the main things that you took away? That the approach to research has multiple arms. So having having sort of a shotgun approach to it can be useful. So where you've got like multiple different projects and some of them will get authorised and some of them won't. That I found to be true for me. There was a project that's very dear to me, which is in obstetric anesthesia. And I was working on a project with one of the SOTs, but unfortunately, because it involved pregnant women, it was deemed to be high risk. So to get approval, we had to go through a high risk application, which was going to be a very expensive and likely very difficult to do in this six months. So we didn't end up going through it. So having multiple attempts at different projects is, is good. One thing that he does mention is to start out not with a grandiose project, but have small bite-sized attempts at things because that's probably more realistic at this point. Don't try to do something that's incredibly high powered. Maybe start with something a bit smaller, which I thought was really useful. Definitely. I always tell people, don't think about doing the randomized control trial in your third year out from med school. It's way too ambitious and time consuming. And there'll be other priorities such as training and exams to get through. That's exactly it. And you think the randomized control trial is the gold standard and that's the level I want to attain. But realistically, if you have to chase down funding and you have to chase down high risk ethic approval and that stuff can take months. I've been involved in the background of writing and reviewing a few papers and you see that there's five, six, seven different authors and you think, geez, how many people does it take to write a paper? And then when you actually get into it, you're like, oh yeah, there's a few key people like the biostatistician and the data researcher and like all these people, you think, okay, this is a huge, huge event. There's a lot of work from a lot of people that goes into getting one article published. You just go like it's data analysis, but it's not, it's so much more complex. That's why it's a career in itself. Exactly. It is a career in itself. Given that you've got a long career ahead of you in anesthesia and hopefully a long period of time ahead of you as a member of the ASA, what are your impressions so far of the ASA? So having a look at what the ASA provides for the training member, the help with the fibers, for instance, which is coming because this is the time of year where people are doing a lot of those. I saw that you guys are doing them virtually, which I think is incredibly reasonable considering the world, the way the world is right now. The other thing that I really liked that you guys were providing was the social wine tasting, the virtual wine tasting. I thought that was really nice. And that's something that I'm planning on attending, not only because I like wine, but also it'll give me a good chance to sit down and network with other juniors and see other people's stories, bring some advice, or at least make a social connection with someone. Maybe someone that I can work with on a project with later, um, or someone that I can learn from. Maybe someone who will happily be a mentor at some point. There's a lot of things that you guys provide that tickle my interest. I also saw in the members group, you guys had bits of advice and knowledge trying to get onto the training program that would be very useful for someone at my degree. Also, there was a whole list of resources once I could go beyond that and get onto a training program that I could access. Things like the Danska Library, which I hadn't really looked into just yet. Having just other websites that I can access that will aid me in my career as I go forward. Uh, just having them all listed there in one spot was really useful. That's good feedback. The person who was the big spearhead for, for writing the trainee member handbook was Richard Seglenix, who used to be the national chair of our trainee member group. So I think that's one of the things I really like about the ASA. It's people volunteering to do stuff to help other people. And that was going to be one of my questions for you was, as someone who's so junior, what roles can I fulfill that would be useful to the organisation? How can I give back in a way? Because at this point, I don't have a lot of experience. What things would you like from someone at my level? I think the big thing that I would like is ideas. It's been a long time since people like myself have been in your position and the world has changed a lot in that time. 
all the things you see on the website, that's because someone's had that idea. So one of the examples is boot camp. In a few years' time, you'll be ready to sit your medical viva and you'll want to get together and practice and hopefully the boot camp will still be going and you'll be able to sign up and come along and practice some medical vivas, get some feedback. I'm talking about the Victoria-specific boot camp now. Someone deeply on the Victorian committee had an idea of, hey, I want to organise this because I think it would be really useful. And she wanted to organise it for a group of peers to come. And then she approached the ASA and we backed it in terms of helping to organise and putting some logistics, bought people some pizzas. And it's Deb Leung has done a fantastic job with it and she keeps running it. It's all of these ideas that is what makes up the ASA. And I'm talking about this from an education point of view because that's, I suppose, my background. This idea that you want to get a course going. I do a lot of work overseas in in low and middle income countries and sometimes organizing these events it takes a lot of resources and you've got the time and the passion and the interest but when it comes to laying down and this is not for me I'm just being hypothetical but if it comes to laying down a few thousand grand to book the accommodation so that all the instructors can come and you're like do I pocket that out of my bank account now I'm the passion and the enthusiasm but I'm not sure I'm going to rest it on this large sum of money for example so that's where getting the ASA involved can help take some of that risk away when Richard came and said the training member handbook hasn't been updated in a while we created a new website and I think it had disappeared and then everyone scratched their heads and went oh yeah you know there was one a few years ago but we haven't looked at it because we're not trainees anymore so he put in a huge amount of effort getting different people to write and contribute and put it all together and we help with the design and the publication and, and the distribution of it so just great ideas and nothing nothing is is gold like I I really did like I read through it once and I really really do enjoy it and it's something that I'll be revisiting probably every year until I get on at least and then once I do get on, I'll start reading the chapters that are, are more aimed at the people who are on. That was probably the most valuable thing that I got out of my membership so far. But talking about the boot camps, I had a look at them and I, I do hope they're running by the time I'm in that position because I can't think of anything more useful than sitting down with a bunch of peers and instructors and going through the massive body of knowledge that we'll need to know for our primaries. That did really appeal to me. It's definitely something that I'll be utilising once, once I'm at that level. That's great feedback. I keep hearing great feedback about the boot camps and I hope they do keep running because they are so popular. Maybe, who knows, maybe Deb will one day get tired of running them and someone else like yourself who's been through them and found them really valuable and says, we can't let it go. We've got to keep it going because it's about supporting everyone else who might benefit from it. There's a concept called professional citizenship. It's about not just going to work, getting your work done, coming home and paying the bills and watching your bank balance grow. It's about how you can continue to contribute to the growth of your profession at all stages through your career. And I think sometimes people just look at, you can only be a specialist to do that, but very much I want to make sure that wherever you are in your career, that you feel like you can contribute to the work of the ASA. The teaching skills that I'm developing now as a resident will hopefully come in useful for when I do get to that level because honestly that sounds like something I'd really enjoy doing. We'll get to that stage first then we'll start talking about those plans. You can help us do some of the online content for the primary exam because everyone like me who's few few too many years out is very nervous about giving an online tutorial for primary exam material. As I as I grow in experience I'd love to become more and more and more involved in this sort of organisation because it's exactly kind of what I wanted to, to join from when I started medical school and this is a specialty that I really want to get into. So that sounds like a plan. Oh, great. That makes me so happy. Did you have any other questions for me about the ASA? 
as a junior, raising my profile within the ASA, what are some of the things that I can do now that will help me become better known or make me useful at this stage? I think one of the things to consider would be to join the trainee committee. In a lot of the bigger states, we have both a junior and a senior member of the trainee committee. And then with that, you'll be invited to all the state committee meetings. And that's a good way to meet people, especially from outside of your hospital network. And especially people, anaesthetists who work predominantly in private anaesthesia as well, because depending on where you work, you might not brush shoulders with those members of our profession as often. Then there's always various other projects that are coming and going. And again, it's the ideas that come forward. So for example, the trainee committee a few years ago got together a group of people and they wrote a couple of resource documents, one for anaesthetists working while they're pregnant and also one for trainees and anaesthetists coming back to work from extended leave. And they were written by the trainee member group and by forming a working party to write those documents. And then that document got fed into the wellbeing special interest groups. So that all the special interest groups, they're all tripartites of ANSCA, ASA and the New Zealand Society. Seen some other ideas that we've had in the pipeline. We've had thoughts about having people come along to our National Scientific Congress to help with the workshops. So for example, if we're doing ultrasound workshops, we want people to come and be ultrasound models. Uh, and that's a good one for trainees or pre-vocational trainees, because then you get to come, you get to come to a congress, you get to see a bit of ultrasound, you get to learn from experts how to get the good images, but also provide a useful function as being a model for, for ultrasounding. So there's a few prizes for research that are only open for trainees. So that's a good one to apply to. And then you get to come to the conference and present your poster or receive a prize. Yeah, I saw that. And I think that's definitely something that I'd consider applying for because it'll give me a platform to sort of present it, which would be really, really good and like great experience. Yeah, definitely. It just sounds very collegiate. That sounds like something that I'll be interested in applying to in time, I think. It does sound like I'll get in, in contact with the um, Victorian committee to see if I can be of any use to them. That'd be good, yeah. Yeah. Because like, I like the idea of being more involved in this society. So I think that's that's definitely something that I'll be doing. That makes me really excited. I think also eventually as you work out what your various interests are, if it is to say pursue medical education, there'll be different ways of expressing that. My background was mainly through medical education, but also welfare and wellbeing and global health. So I've got my channels in in the ASA and different people come from different areas and you find your niche group. I've got a lot of interests at this point. Yeah, that's a perfect way to be. And I'm hoping that wherever your interests take you, that there'll be something in the ASA that you'll be able to tap into. But then also, if there isn't, that you feel that you can create something. So we had an application a couple of years ago, or a lot of anaesthetists who are also in the military, and they wanted to form a group just for anaesthetists who were active members of the military, just to give them a space that they could meet and talk both about anaesthesia and military work. And we realised that we didn't have that. So we're like, yeah, sure, of course. That's so good. I guess that's really progressive. You guys just address people's needs as they come up. Ultimately, we're a member organisation. So if a member wants something and it's a good idea, we're here to try and help as much as we can. There's all the clunky bureaucracies, which you try not to negatively impact it. But if members want something, then we try best to create that. It gets interesting when members want different things. Then we have to do a little bit more adjudication. But if it's something like providing some sort of service like that, then that's an easy one. I don't think I've got any other questions for you at this point. Oh, well, thank you so much for your time today, Arnold. Oh, no worries. I'm actually very excited to be a part of this and enjoy. Thank you for bringing it up.
Great. Well, you know, you've got to be careful when you mention things like that to the president because we're always doing new stuff and I'm always looking for people to tap on the shoulders. So you're definitely in my sights now. Despite having a busy life, I also have a manic personality. So I feel like I've got a lot of time. Good to know. You'll be with kindred spirits, trust me. Well, wonderful chatting. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for that. It was a pleasure. Well, that was really fun chatting with Ahmed, and I hope that you found some tips in there that you might find useful. I just wanted to have a big shout out to everyone who's in between exams at the moment. I know it's been a really challenging year. If you think there's anything that we can do, please do get in contact with us. If you're keen to look at the ASA Trainee Member Handbook, as I said, I'll put it in the show notes. Otherwise, it can be found on the ASA website, which is asa.org.au. All right, stay safe out there. This podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists. More podcasts can be found on the ASA website, asa.org.au. Music was La Toile Dance by Maidan, which can be found on the free music archive website. We hope you enjoyed listening. <laughs>